We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Thanks for listening to Layman's Lounge podcast. Today we have Leah Savas, who is co-author along with Marvin Oluski of the story of abortion in America, a street level history, 1652 to 2022. Um, Leah, if you could start by just helping me unbutcher those names. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's Savas and then Olasky. Okay, there we go. And so yeah. what exactly? So you wrote, I mean, what is this book? This book is 494 pages. You guys wrote this book. So it's, you know, it's, it's no meager tome. It's full on. So what um, can you tell us of, about what you and Marvin do and like in your day to day and your weekly coverage and, and then how 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 this book come, came about? Yeah. So Marvin has been a reporter, an editor, a historian, a professor for a long time. He's about 72 years old, unless he's had a birthday since this book came out. <laughs> um but yeah, he's very experienced when it comes to reporting and writing on the abortion topic. So he actually wrote a book about abortion in the 1990s that originally he wanted to revise that book in writing this book. He just wanted to kind of update it. But then as he was doing the research, he realized, wow, there's a lot more information available these days with the internet. And you can search a lot of historical records online. You can find old newspaper clippings online. And so he that's when he actually asked me to help him with the book. At the time, I had just started working for World News Group as the abortion reporter. Um, so yeah, week by week, I am reporting on the abortion topic. I write a weekly roundup of of news on the abortion topic for World News Group. Um, so yeah, definitely my research and interviewing for that beat has contributed a lot for this book. No, yeah, you're really, you, you're sort of on the front lines as you kind of know what's going on. Before we like drill down in the book, I have to ask you this super high level question is when Roe v. Wade got overturned, I could not believe how many of my, I don't know if I should air, I think I think I don't have to air quote them Christians, but a lot of Christian people were like kind of mad about it. And I'm like, what world do I live in? What what do you make? What do you make of that? You see that, too? Did you think that was weird? I was wait, what? Yeah. People are like, don't celebrate. Even if it's like this is this is hard for people. I'm like, wait, shouldn't we celebrate? Right. I'm, I was very confused <clears throat> on the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people had different reactions uh, to even Christian people, people who profess to be Christians, at least had differing reactions on the ruling. Some thought that it didn't go far enough because it actually left the abortion issue up to states. And they think that hmm. the government should not be allowing the killing of unborn children. And then there are people like you were saying on the other side of the issue who were saying, this is not okay. Women are going to die. And I think that comes from a misunderstanding of what abortion in the law is. And maybe, maybe it's a misunderstanding. I wonder though, some people might be kind of willfully ignorant, yeah. but uh, I don't think people understand that there are other things you can do when a woman is facing a life-threatening pregnancy situation. Um, it, 
actively killing the unborn child is not the only way to separate the mom and child if there is a life-threatening situation. So for instance, you can induce labor early if a woman is actively dying, like the baby's going to die too, unless you separate them. So I think there's a lot of confusion in the media about what this meant for like life-threatening situations. But there are obviously some people out there who just think abortion is a good thing. We should have it because it allows women to choose, you know, quote unquote, choose what they want to do with their right. lives and how they want to handle a difficult situation. So, well, the, the way I took it was like nothing less than liberal, you know, liberalism creeping in just straight up, just sure. like I'm it's i feel like the litmus test for christians today is still the 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 creeds but they're far too narrow as benji and i you know we interviewed someone trevin wax a while back and we're realizing that people have quite a narrow view of the uh of the creeds of old and like i feel like a litmus test is like the lgbt thing and and abortion so I really hope you could help us sort of uncover, like, how does that work? Am I like too, too galvanizing to think that or whatever? So the book is published by Crossway. Like I said, it's 494 pages and um, you cover the history 1652 to 2022, give a little epilogue as well. And the subtitle is a street level history. So can you introduce like, what what is meant by street level history and what's an example of that playing out in the book yeah so the idea of uh, behind the the term street level is this actually comes from something marvin has taught a lot of us here at world news group um but he contrasts street level and sweet level histories or or accounts so for instance when i first started working for world the a big, a big uh, priority for the editors was to see reporters writing street-level stories. So that looks like actually going out, talking to people who are having these experiences, who are affected by certain developments um, in the news, rather than simply talk. Obviously, there's a there's a place for analysis, but rather than simply talking to someone on the like say a professor or a lawmaker, someone on the high end of these issues um, who who really just thinks, who thinks about these issues in terms of ideas rather than in terms of the individual people and the everyday experiences of people. So we do this in this book by telling the stories of specific people who have been affected by this issue. And you can see this starting very early on in the book uh, in chapter two, we have the story of the first recorded and confirmed abortion in America. Um, and we tell the story of Captain William Mitchell, who impregnated Susan Warren and then forced her to eat an abortifacient on a poached egg. Mm -hmm. And that eventually led to the death of the unborn child. He went on trial for murder and the people in the community just saw him as a a terrible person. He had some sort of influence in the community, but after after this all happened, he lost that influential position. Um, people people were obviously uh, 
just strongly opposed to what he did. They didn't see abortion as a good thing. So rather than talking about what we hear today about how, oh, you know, in early America, abortion was acceptable up until about five months, you know, it was just acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, if you actually look at the stories, you can see even stories of people who, who forced abortions on women who were pregnant only around three months these men still going on trial for murder. So the sweet level. Yeah. I want to interject because at first I didn't understand the importance of you tracing the history like this until I real, until you, you had said, you know, you had mentioned that the reason all this history is important is because it was assumed. And that was the fodder to allow the 1973 Roe v. Wade to happen. So why is, are those, those anecdotes that you have a bunch of why why is it that they matter other than like just saying oh yeah in the olden days we were against abortion but it it actually matters for like like yeah legal reasons exactly and we can see that a little bit in the Dobbs decision you can actually see Justice Alito who wrote the majority opinion he mentions some of these cases that we talk about in this book as evidence that it was not really a part of the tradition of of America of early America to allow for abortions um even before around 5 months which they call quickening so it does have legal implications um it, as we could see in the Dobbs decision so ultimately these arguments these historical arguments that the justices will were making in in Roe v Wade were not founded in the street level reality so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, they would have considered it murder, at least early on. And eventually, when did that shift begin to change um, from seeing it? I mean, obviously, it affected uh, Captain. I don't know how he got the great name Captain, but Captain William. uh, Because it it ended up affecting his ability to run for office and stuff. So when did did the shift start to change? It's like, we're actually viewing this as uh, it's murder and then not viewing it as murder. Yeah, well, so later on, uh, in um, as we go throughout the book, Marvin Marvin wrote the first several chapters, um, and he traces how it was a lack of uh, ability to actually convict people who were participating mm-hmm. in abortions that led to specific laws targeting abortion and distinguishing that from murder. So I don't think it's because the people um, writing the laws didn't think abortion was actually murder, but just because the juries were not um, giving ver- like they they couldn't agree, for instance, mm-hmm. that um, there's enough evidence to prove in the first place that this woman was pregnant. Second of all, that this person who gave her the abortifacient or performed a surgical abortion was the one who did it because often the woman is the only the only witness and sometimes she ended up dead so so they eventually introduced these laws targeting attempted abortions Mm -hmm. and i don't know if in some way that contributed to the view of abortion not being murder but it was it was also just a flow of culture starting to see abortion as um, more of a women's issue and started to, starting to take the baby out of the story. And we can see this happen in a lot of newspaper reports, how er, like early on, you can see the language um, 
often referring to the babies who are killed in abortion, but that kind of disappears as it goes along. And actually that other character, that character of the unborn child disappears from a lot of newspaper reports. Mm -hmm. So that's something that Marvin tracks in his chapters. Um, And I think it's also a loss of uh, kind of biblical scriptural influence in communities early on. Um, in, In the case of, say, Captain Mitchell and Susan Warren, a big influence in that community was what scripture had to say about unborn life and about murder. Um, so when as communities kind of uh, disbanded people, you know, moved to big cities, it was a lot of young people on their own working in factories, for instance, not having that uh, close-knit culture of family around them. It seems like people just started to care less about what scripture had to say. Um, and I think that contributed a lot to just starting to not see abortion as the killing of an innocent human mm-hmm. being. So, so from your survey starting at 1652, um, I'm sure there's ones that you specifically know better, so you could focus on those. But what what do you see as this was, whether it's a legal precedent set like Roe v. Wade in 73, or just a shift in culture? And you just mentioned like, you know, that we stopped I think I remember J.I. Packer wrote in a book, he said, like, 100 years ago, theology was every gentleman's hobby, you know, no longer is it like that. Like, I'm impressed if kids even know the story of like Noah's Ark now. But anyways, what do you see as pretty important, like turning points or things that set precedent, like over the last few hundred years, like you guys did here? Yeah, well, one that comes to mind, and this is a little later on, but before. Uh, within, within, um, I think it was within about 10 years of the Roe v. Wade decision, maybe even closer. I wish I could remember the specific date, but it was, it was in the 1960s. There is this, uh, the case of this woman named Sherry Finkbein, um, who actually became pregnant, uh, with her husband found out later that this drug she was taking could cause, uh, basically abnormalities in the developing baby. Mm. And when she found out about this, she was, she was concerned that her baby was going to have some sort of abnormality and decided she wanted an abortion. So a hospital, even though abortion wasn't widely legal, there were these hospital committees that could approve abortions in certain cases. And this hospital committee agreed to um, allow her to abort kind of using a loophole, even though technically it wasn't allowed for fetal abnormality, it was allowed for like women's health or mental health, things like that. So they allowed her to get an abortion. But then when the news found out, you know, this, this was a big news story and, and the hospital, when it, when it, when the news broke and they saw this just kind of going everywhere, they changed their mind. They backtracked and were like, actually, you can't get an abortion. So she, you know, this story kind of blew up and a lot of people really supported Sherry Finkbein's Mm -hmm. efforts to get an abortion. They thought she should be able to, it was like the public sentiment really shifted a lot in favor of abortion in this case. Mm. So she eventually actually went overseas to get an abortion. Um, even though there were some people who were offering to 
like adopt the baby, you know, they're, they're eager to help her, but there was still this overwhelming, like number of people who were, um, you know, just so in favor of her being able to do what she can. So it's actually interesting how stories like that, um, led to a lot of the more public acceptance of abortion. Um, it's these, these heart-wrenching stories, I guess you could say that affect people's opinions and, and then later affect the law. Yeah. So for her, it was more, I don't want my child to be born with any abnormal abnormalities, but people in the culture at the time latch onto that as a means of kind of coming in the back door for the woman's right to choose, even though hers, it was more, I just want my child to be well. And if it's not good, I'm running that risk. So I might as well get rid of it. Yeah. So they kind of jumped on that. Exactly. And it's interesting because you see a lot of the similar arguments still today um, people saying, well, people, you know, you should be able to get an abortion because if you don't, then that child might end up in foster care or that child might have this deformity or issue as if that's a reason why you should be able to end someone else's life. Um, but it's still, that's still an argument we hear and it's been going on for a long time. I would say like, it's just once our nation sort of the nation here in America, like shifted from the va- just basically Christian values, it, you know, during the sexual revolution, all manner of sin is aroused, right? And so it, it just it makes it makes sense all the things you know all the things that would naturally follow. So I mean, I, I fully get it. It's just it's still depressing, even though we know it happened. Even just hearing it, I, it makes me like so angry. Now here I'm like I'm pretty bombastic. And you're level-headed because like you're, you're in media, so you have to keep it cool. So I almost choose to not even say, oh, pro-life, you know, I, I will like try to be all verbiose. I I mean, pro-choice and say, oh, you are pro-sanctioning and celebrating cold-blooded murder. Like I, I rather use that language, but of course that it's not really going to change anyone's mind. I don't know. But it's almost like I want to be a stick in the mud and call a spade a spade. So yeah. I know that question almost might not have to do with the book. But what do you think about that? I I have nothing wrong with. Well, so in in my reporting at World, we actually have a um, like a language manual. Like cer- there are certain words that we use that. Um, say AP doesn't recommend, or actually they recommend the opposite. So we don't use pro-choice. If I say pro-choice, it's because it was a slip, but we tend to use the term pro-abortion when we're writing about people who favor abortion or people who would claim to be pro-choice. Let me even even hit that. Even abortion is like kind of, I feel like they get out of jail free, like sure, sure. (laughs) Right? No. What, I mean, what do you think? Like, is it, yeah man i i don't think like again i you you like in this podcast it's christians so we could like say this but do you think out in the in the world is it as you've seen things unfold is that effective to call the spade the spade or is it more effective to be like less is more you know and winsome or whatever oh yeah that's a it's a hard question um I think, yeah, different people have very different opinions about this. I think there is a place, a time and a place to just be very upfront and call things what it is. 
Um, and I think that's probably, that should probably be our standard and our kind of, um, our go-to as believers. So, but I also think that the way we say things, even if it is calling a spade a spade, the way we say things can also, and the context in which we say things can also make a big difference. So for instance, if, if we're calling, you know, and, and I do believe abortion is murder. So when we call abortion murder though, are we also presenting what scripture has to say about sin and the offer that, um, in Christ we can have forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. So I think just giving condemnation without also pointing to the, the grace of the gospel is not good, but, but pointing to the grace of the gospel without showing the problem of sin is also not good. Yeah. So I do think that the pro-life movement could focus more on that sin, you know, the reality of that sin, um, and not ignore it. Um, I, cause there is a tendency to dismiss people who have been involved specifically women who have been involved in abortions, um, as like, oh, they just didn't know what they're doing. I think today, as opposed to a lot of the stories we see early on in, in the book today, especially we see a lot more women who know what they're doing. Um, so, so, and, and, and I think for the culture around us, you know, the people in their lives who are pressuring them maybe they also really should know what they're doing. Um, and yeah, so we should be calling that out. Um, not just offering, you know, oh, there's forgiveness in Christ, but also pointing out, you know, abortion really is a heart problem that only Christ can ultimately solve. So. Yeah. And to go back a little bit here, rewind, back in history. Can you tell us a little bit about Madame Restel and just how people profited? I mean, they profit off of abortion. I mean, nothing yeah. has changed, but can you tell us a little bit about her and kind of her lavish lifestyle that yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was a moneymaker? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's actually interesting. So one of the ways that she um, advertised her services was through newspaper ads, but she wouldn't actually use the term abortion in these ads. She used a bunch of um, euphemisms for abortion, which, you know, in some ways abortion is already a euphemism. So, um, but she would basically say, oh, I have these, we have these pills. You you can, um, I would not recommend taking them if you are. And then she'd have all these asterisks to represent pregnant, but you know, everyone knew that it meant pregnant. So Mm -hmm. the idea was you shouldn't take these if you're pregnant, but if you don't want to be pregnant, then you should take them. And and she'd also use terms like, um, this will help with the regulation of the menses. It'll essentially bring back your period, which is actually a term that we're hearing again today. There are these quote unquote missed period pills that certain organizations are offering as really they're just the same thing as the actual abortion pill, same dosage and everything, but you just don't have to take a pregnancy test before you take them. So it's the same idea where they're masking like what's really going on. And she basically was able to, well, so in doing this, obviously she had people coming to her who had connections with, or were people who are kind of high up. And so she knew all these secrets 
about people who have gotten abortions that maybe didn't want others to know. So for instance, when she needed to um, keep someone quiet or get money, then she could just call that person up and be like, hey, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to have to tell anyone this secret, but, you know, if I can't get my money. So mm. she really had, uh, she really had a lot of influence in, in her community in that way. Um, just knowing all those secrets and being able to keep people quiet, um, basically blackmailing them to keep mm -hmm. them quiet. So, and then she lived a pretty lavish lifestyle. So people didn't, she wasn't running like this rundown shack, yeah. you know, yeah. at the end yeah. of town. I mean, she, so you looked at her and she probably thought, well, this woman is an upstanding woman. Look how well mm -hmm. off she is, but yeah. she's. Yeah. But people knew too, why she was so rich like mm -hmm. it wasn't a secret what was going on it was just nothing that law enforcement would actually do anything about because of how many people she had relationships with and all the influence she had in a in a blackmail sort of way yeah, yeah, <laughs> over yeah. those people so um yeah. but actually one of the other i can't remember there is another abortionist a female abortionist later on um who had a similar there's similar descriptions of her just living lavishly you know having huge furs and just very fancy belongings and this woman actually had her pinky toes her little toes surgically removed so that she could wear high heels more comfortably so wow. you know it's just interesting um Whoa. these are really interesting images of these people who profited yeah. off of the death of unborn babies wow. and yeah, obviously had these more materialistic kind yeah. of goals in mind. Well, you mentioned uh, Ruth Barnett made like $9 million, uh, which was today the equivalent of like $100 million. Mm -hmm. And she was making tons of money. But in the, you mentioned uh, in the book that it's mentioned that she did 40,000 abortions from 1918 to 1968, and then even uh, aborted helped abort six of her own grandkids mm -hmm. i mean just sad yeah yeah no it's it is really sad and that i think that story her story is especially sad because of the anger you can see in her life um mm -hmm. she it was her her daughter wanted to get into this sorority and the sorority wouldn't let her join because of the job that her mom had. So, uh, Ruth Barnett actually pledged to, uh, I think it was like buy her daughter a new dress or some sort of new like accessory every time someone from one of those sororities came to her for an abortion. So, mm -hmm. um, this daughter said that, you know, she was the best dressed girl at the college. Wow. Um, you know, just like, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just shocking thinking about someone making that money off of, off of all those deaths, but also shocking to think about this sorority that wouldn't accept the daughter of a, of a woman who performs abortions mm -hmm. and yet sending so many of their own sorority sisters to that same woman. It's just really incredible. Yeah. No, it's so when I was watching the Super Bowl, it was like, I realized a good portion of the ads are like, this isn't like conspiracy theory guy. I'm just, I'm, I'm noticing like when I, that, or like if I watch TV, 
It's like so many ads are from like the pharmaceutical world and great. I'm really glad for medicine, but it's just, you just know who has money. That's all I'm saying. And it's, there's a lot of money in, you know, in, in killing children and it's, and it's, but I think even, I will say, even if there wasn't a lot of money, since humans are so utterly depraved, we, we would still do it. So it's, it's almost like a, well, whatever, it doesn't even matter. I wanted to, I want to move along in history. Um, I, I wanted to draw out more of this notion of street level versus sweet, sweet level. What do you see like today? What are just some of the, the default, either fallacious or just bunk, already disproven um, arguments or advocating for like killing children? Like in the sweet level world and why, 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 why do those not hold water? Yeah. Well, I mean, people will still argue today that unborn babies are just a clump of cells. Like you'll still hear this argument from students on a university campus. Um, but I don't know the fact that people still argue that despite um, for instance, you mentioned the Super Bowl. There was one commercial I noticed where it was it was a Pringles commercial, and you know that guy got his hand stuck in the Pringles jar, and yeah, his grandpa's yeah. like, "It's okay, it's happened to so many people." And one of the people he mentioned was the their little cousin Timmy, and he held up this picture of an ultrasound, like yeah. a, a baby in an ultrasound image, unborn baby. Um, you know, he called this baby your little cousin Timmy, and. Yeah. So I, I don't know the like images, yeah. like ultrasound images are so prolific today and they're so humanizing to the unborn child that it is shocking, I guess, that mm. there are still people who argue that babies are just a clump of cells. I think ultimately though, they're making an argument more, less of a biological argument and more of a, well, you know, that baby can't reason, that baby can't um, mm. have opinions or preferences, mm. but that same argument then would apply to like a newly born baby, you yeah. know? So they, so I, Leah, yeah. I want you to sort of read between the lines here as I'm sure you've done. Do, do you think those people who really advocate for abortion and killing, do, do you, I may be from people you've interacted with and who have written you or whatever, but do you think they really don't think that that's a baby or they're like, turning a blind eye and they're just not even trying to consider it because I mean, this is, this is super bootlicker me, but to me, it's just like, no, it's, it's like such, it's clearly a babe. It's clearly a baby. Like we have all, I, I don't know, but what do you like really out there in the street? What do you see? Do you think they really like, Oh, that no, it's for sure. It's just like a mole on my back that needs to be removed. Yeah. Well, so I think it depends on what, you know, obviously we cover a lot of ground in this book. It really depends on what time period you're looking at. Um, and I think, I think, I mean, oddly early on in early America, these, like the woman, Susan Warren, who the first, who had the first recorded abortion and confirmed abortion in America, she knew that it was a sin 
to, first of all, get pregnant outside of marriage, but also that it was a sin to kill this unborn baby. Obviously it was forced on her. So she had a different Mm -hmm. level of culpability in that, Mm -hmm. but, um, she knew it was wrong. And I think that's not because necessarily of their medical knowledge, because they didn't have a very advanced medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. However, they had, like I said earlier, had a really advanced or strong knowledge of what scripture had to say. Um, but then if you move, move on, like, um, I think in, in my later chapters, I talk about some women who are, for instance, going to get an abortion and they hear someone on the sidewalk say your baby has, um, you know, fingers and toes already. And like hearing that is just shocking to them. Um, and this late, this lady in particular that I'm talking about, this was more of like in the 1980s 1990s so before ultrasound technology was like super common like it is today but then if you fast forward to today i think it would be hard to find somebody who didn't know at least something about the development of the baby in the womb like i said you have those pringles commercials and things like that um but so in some ways then when you hear women or people making this argument um it reminds me a lot of romans one just the concept of yeah. uh, the Lord turning people over to uh, just lies, you know, yeah. allowing them to continue rejecting the truth like they have done until mm-hmm. they just can't recognize it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think today, I think you hear a lot, a lot of these arguments still because people don't care what scripture has to say, even if they have heard more and more about uh, the technological developments, they can see ultrasound images. Um, they know the science, <laughs> you know, despite all of that, um, even though it's a lot more common to know what mm. the science has to say without the, the faith element, it doesn't really mean much to them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, that's just my take, I guess, on, on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in keeping with kind of the ultrasound theme there, can you Tell us like when the technology re- like first started and was there a pushback from kind of the abortion machine when it first came out? Do you know, I don't know if you know that or not. Was there a pushback of like, hey, people can actually see this. This might slow things down a bit. You know, I can't speak to if there was a pushback to the actual technology. There's definitely a pushback from pro-abortion groups when, for instance, state lawmakers started to present legislation that would, for instance, require an uh, abortion facility to display a ultrasound image to a woman who's considering an abortion or who has come for an abortion appointment. So they were pushing back against that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the original technology in the 1980s, um, that I think that's when it really took off. Um, And that's when you start seeing some uh, pro-life pregnancy centers start to introduce tech, this technology as a way to help women see the reality of a more life, but it was in development for decades before that. It was mainly this man, Dr. Ian Donald, who an obstetrician who was just interested in learning about how, um, he was actually looking for a solution to respiratory problems in infants, but eventually started looking into, um, how ultrasound technology could be used to display what's going on inside of a pregnant woman. And when this really took off, he even said that 
you know, if nothing else in my, in my career, I have disproven the, I, I don't remember the exact words, but it's something like I've disproven the dirty lie that a yeah. uh, baby is just a little clump of tissue or clump of jelly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he saw really the significance of what he was doing here um, mm-hmm. and what this technology would do for the, the whole world of unborn babies and pregnant mothers. Yeah. Before reading you, I didn't realize to what extent that technology really, really, how it really played a role. And Benji and I here, we're Kyperians and we, we, we see that the Lord is Lord of all. And it is valuable to be a pastor and a missionary, but look how, look, look what good is done from this man, just cultivating the earth and extracting this technology. Like Mm-hmm. I'm nerding out. Almost makes me want to cry. I, I love that. So, so anyways, um, yeah. what do you think about being like a one issue voter? Right. So like oh. for me, I'm the one issue. I'm totally the, like, I hate politics. I don't believe anyone. So I'm like, well, this Trump, for example, at least claims to be somewhat, you know, anti-abortion, right? Like, so I would just vote for him, right? Like I, I would take that over someone, you know, and of course there's all these responses, but amongst the like Christians like me, and then, but then, you know, the response to that is often, well, you do know more, less abortions happen number under Democrats, you know? And then I'm like, well, is that real? I don't really know. And then they follow up with that. Then it turns out, that these people that Trump appointed did in fact do something. So how do you make sense of, uh, I basically hit you with three things there. One is <laughs> voting, um, which now I guess we just need to concern ourselves with at the state level, I don't know. And this notion of the Democrats, uh, under democratic, um, you know, Democrats like being a president or whatever, there's less abortions. Any thoughts on those? I'm sorry, we're hitting you so hard. <laughs> that's okay oh man i don't know exactly how to answer these i'm not a political expert um i guess i would just say that um i guess you know people have different different convictions on this i think even between marvin and i we would maybe differ a bit too um but i think the important thing is to be a faithful citizen and you know, cast a vote in accordance with your values. Um, I do think the abortion issue is crucial. Um, I, I would personally fall in that category of a one issue voter. Although, uh, I would not say that only one party is a Christian party and the other party is not Christian. I think, I think both both of our parties in, in this country are very non-Christian. Um, ultimately, it's not, they're not really concerned with God's word. They're more concerned about mm-hmm. um, advancing a certain agenda. And I think sometimes Republicans can just claim to be pro-life in order to secure the votes of yeah. people who, you know, are those one issue voters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it is hard to say because just what someone says they are doesn't actually say much about um who they are or what their values really are so um yeah i would i would love to see more 
true like believers run for office, but I also have a hard time imagining that true believers would win political office. <laughs> so, cause you have, you kind of have to have an ego. Uh, you have to make promises that you can't necessarily keep. <laughs> so I just true. don't know it. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, that's a really tough question, yeah. but yeah. that's I my, think it would be, I think it'd be difficult to be a Christian politician nowadays. I'm not saying mm-hmm. you can't do it as a disciple, just that a lot of the pressures and things like that are just, you know, it'd be difficult. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm a one, one issue voter too. And, and thinking about all these things, when the decision came down last, was it last fall, summer? Yeah. Well, in June. Yeah. It was in June. Yeah. I just remember being, I was just shocked. I it just, it was a testimony to my unbelief of 49 years of the church praying for this. And it's like, it came out of nowhere. And I was like, is this yeah. fake news? Like <laughs> what, what did I click on? I, I, I really couldn't believe it. It just, it was so shocking to me. And I just thought, man, Lord, I, we have prayed for this for 49 years and it seems like it's happening. And then I, I couldn't believe it because of where we're at in our, our cultural climate and political climate. Uh, how did, how did being a life reporter for you, and you probably were tipped off, you know, obviously a little bit before most people. So like, was that shocking for you? Did this kind of feel like it came out of left field or where were you at when you kind of heard and, and what were you thinking? Yeah. Well, so we, Marvin and I started working on this book a few years ago. And at the time, the the goal was to publish around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It was going to be the 50th anniversary. So at the time we weren't thinking like, oh, well, Roe v. Wade will be overturned by the time it comes out. Uh, not at all. Like even when we found out that the Dobbs dis- or the Dobbs case was headed to the United States Supreme Court, we, I think Marvin, I, I, I guess I can't speak for him, but based on what I remember from our conversations, I think both of us were in agreement that, oh yeah, it's most likely that this, um, this opinion, whatever ruling they put down will allow Mississippi's 15 week abortion ban, which was the law kind of at the heart of the case that, you know, the Supreme, the Supreme court would allow that to stand, but we didn't think that it would, that they would overturn Roe v. Wade altogether. So when it actually happened, I think both Marvin and I were pretty surprised. Um, We didn't think that was going to be the outcome of the Dobbs decision, but it made for a very interesting chapter 50 because I, I, we talked to the publisher and we're like, okay, we'll need one more. We'll need some extra time in July to write one more chapter about, yeah, exactly. We just wanted to be able to write about whatever the decision actually said. Um, And then it ended up being about basically about abortion facilities closing in some states and uh, laws enacting these, or sorry, states enacting these laws, um, just forcing abortion facilities to close. So yeah, so it was, it was very, it was a very supr- a big surprise for us, but also a kind of exciting way to end the book. Yeah, it to me it felt like this is going to be civil war. Like when it came out, as much as I was shocked and rejoicing, just everything on Twitter. I mean, people yeah. were coming unglued, mm-hmm. and, and the anger, like you could. Fe- to me, it's like I could feel it in the air, and I thought, oh. And then, but then there was a part of me is like, you know what? These things happen all the time. New stuff pops up. Everybody sure. goes crazy on Twitter for a couple of weeks, and then it dies down. And, and not that it hasn't like it hasn't like died down per se, but I feel like it has compared to the heat and the animosity and vitriol and everything that was just brewing for Mm -hmm. those first couple of weeks. It was like, yikes. It was interesting though, 
in some ways I wish that there was time to write more chapters because so much happened after that. Like even in November seeing, I don't know if you guys knew about, I think there was there four, there were four or five states that had abortion related ballot measures to that voters could uh, cast their vote on. And three of the states, so California, Michigan, and Vermont, they all were considering constitutional amendments to allow, to basically add a right to abortion to the state constitution. All three of those passed. And then the, the there were two pro-life ones in Montana and Kentucky, um, and those did not pass. <laughs> so I think it, in some ways it was like seeing in how how people are still even in november they were still thinking about dobbs yeah. and it seemed like they yeah they just had this very negative reaction to a, a pro-life um ballot measure and a, a positive overall majority positive reaction to the pro-abortion ballot measure so it's it's unfortunate but it shows that there's a lot of work to be done just talking to people one-on-one, like changing hearts and minds on this issue. Mm -hmm. I saw you somewhere in the book, I forgot the stat, but it was something like 50, 54% or just more than half of Americans were pro-abortion. I I remember reading that. And so it was like, well, and I would have assumed it was much more than that, but then it's like, well, how does Roe v. Wade get overturned? And then, like I said, I don't know about politics, but from reading this, I realized it just has to do with like, is it constitutional or not? It's not like necessarily, necessarily, is it ethical or whatever, but it's like, is this the precedent? Is this what was meant, the, the intentions at the outset? Um, a question I had for you is, who are some like, uh, man, who are some heroes in this story who who have like fought for life? So, I mean, so we know like that guy who did the the ultrasound, that guy's a hero. Yeah. Who else? And then I, I think I follow, I think it's called like Live Nation or Live Nation. No, that's not it. There's live some, action. Is it what's that? Live action. Yes, on Instagram. And I'm just like, man, they're really doing it right. Who yeah. can you commend to us who who is like who's gone before us and was awesome and who's currently doing some stuff right now? Yeah. Um, okay, people who have gone before us. Um well, I would I would one of my heroes from this book, from one of Marvin's chapters, was uh, this doctor, um, Hugh Hodge, who this was even in the um, in the 1800s. He was arguing that life begins at conception, um, and that you have an individual, a distinct human individual, at the moment of fertilization. This is before modern technology, before mm-hmm. ultrasounds, and yet he, he and a lot of other doctors actually knew this about unborn children. So I would just commend people to read up about him in the book. Um, yeah. Also, just look into the science. Like even though the everyday human didn't necessarily know much about the the, the development of a baby inside of its mother. Um, the doctors did. A lot of doctors did. They knew the science, even in the 1800s. So I think that that was something that was really exciting for me to learn about. But more more recently, I, I would say a lot of my heroes, the people that I really admire, 
um, and I write about some of them in my chapters are women who, and, and men who have worked at pro-life pregnancy centers, counseling women, offering them, um, uh, material assistance. But the ones that stick out to me the most are the, the ones who were not afraid to share the gospel with the yeah. women who had come to them. Cause that's a big thing about yeah. some pregnancy centers is they're, they're worried to bring up you know, spiritual things or Christianity or the Bible. But there are some who I wrote about who were not afraid to bring that up because they know that it's the most important thing. Like it's more important than a woman becoming pro-life. You know, the most important thing is that they commit their life to Christ. So they weren't afraid to tell these women, no, getting an abortion is a sin. This is what God has to say. You know, I will, I will help you. I love you but this is what God has to say about this. Okay. And yeah. for, for some of the women, that was, that was the clincher for them. So I love like, that's so clear. I've listened to a few interviews from you. Like the gospel is never like a footnote to you. You're not mm-hmm. functioning only off of like natural theology. It's like, man, we are with you. It's, it's the gospel, like yeah. change parts need to happen. There is such a thing as this common grace, but the world yeah. we live in is a bit diabolical. And so we do commend you. Like, that's so important. Like I was listening to um, Matt Walsh, the guy from uh, the Daily Wire on mm-hmm. on the Joe Rogan podcast about like LGBT or no, no, on like trans stuff. And he and Joe were on the same page and he was using natural th- theology. But then they started talking about like homosexual marriage and Rogan blew him up because the guy never like referenced King Jesus and it's sure. like you you have to have the revealed mm-hmm. truth or you're just gonna like you know yeah anyway so thank you for thank you for doing that oh Stanley. yeah um we're closing out and this last part I didn't even think about I haven't thought much about Roe v about Roe v Wade being overturned since it happened I think all I've thought is how diabolical these um these states are or these occupations will pay for you to like you know, go somewhere else and murder your kid. But um, one thing I never even thought about, and I don't know if this was in the book or an interview I read with you, you're like, now we have lots more questions. Like, should not just the doctors who perform it, but should the mothers be, because now you could like take medicine, should, should a mom who has an abortion like face jail time? And I was like, oh, my deep, my default is no. But then I'm thinking, wait, is it murder or not? Right. And then, and I know, and then on the, on the epilogue, Marvin says, he wrote, he wrote this arresting women is a sure way to arrest the progress of pro-life ideas in the 21st century. And I'm like, I totally agree. And I'm like, but at the same time, is that is it murder or not? Right. And I know I'm not even saying what is the right answer. Cause, but there's like, there is a lot going on here. And then it makes me think, well, isn't the, the, like the chief revealed function of the government to punish evildoers. So if we were to try as be sola scriptura as can, I think that we would say yes, but easy for me. Right. Cause I haven't had an abortion or whatever, <laughs> but then finally, I, another thing I thought is remember people were like, when slavery was happening, they're like, there's a few people who are like, let's abolish it right now. But mm-hmm. we know it would like crumble the economy. But then there were some other people who are like, mm-hmm. let's phase it out. And it's like, 
phasing it out. No, it's wrong now. But then they're thinking like the long, the long game. And so man, yeah. you, might, you might just say, I got no comment on this, but I'm curious what well, you actually, think about that. Yeah. Well, so I'm currently working on learning more about this abolitionist view of abortion, this abolitionist approach. I've been um, doing some research on it. Hopefully I'll have an article in the coming months, but this is going to be a big question. I think moving mm -hmm. forward, the mainstream pro-life movement does not think women should be punished for abortions in any way. Um, but the abolitionist groups would argue that they're not really even targeting women. Um, that's not their goal in, in their, the legislation that they're pushing for. They just want equal protection. They want women, uh, babies to be protected, um, in homicide laws. So, you know, these, so these bills that they push, it's not like there's a line that says, and women should also be prosecuted for abortion. It just, it just says, you know, this is a homicide case. So you would apply the law to those cases, but yeah, there are big questions like, you know, in, in the early days in, uh, the United States, um, well, even before it was necessarily the United States, when you had these men going on trial for murder for participating in abortions, um, and then later there's just a difficulty in actually getting a murder verdict, like a mm -hmm. jury couldn't agree. So mm -hmm. in my mind, that's another question that people have to think about is the history of when it was considered murder in the law. Some people kind of got off easy because mm -hmm. there was, there was not a, a total verdict of murder. So anyway, but yeah, this will be a big topic, I think, moving forward to look at. Yeah, I think, um, Think about the you know like pregnancy resource centers um, as as we're closing out here and their role and the importance of the church to just come in and love people, um, those who have had abortions. You know I'm a pastor and so every Sanctity of Life Sunday we, we preach uh, a message on that and sometimes at different times of the year mm -hmm. we don't just we don't kind of just stick it on one Sunday of the yeah. year. It's like you know we're pro life like year round. Every Sunday is pro life Sunday. Um, but you know, there's so many people that are hurting that need to be reminded that they're forgiven. There are boyfriends mm -hmm. and husbands who were involved, who pressured people who may be married to someone else, but they pressured their girlfriend 20 years ago and they're dealing with guilt. And mm -hmm. like we talked about the gospel being, uh, right there at, at the forefront, just reminding people that, you know, Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus, he will not remember your sins. And I think mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's just an important part. And I know the, the pregnancy resource center in our town, we're in the darkest part of California and these ladies are not afraid to tell people that they need Jesus, but they love them. You know, like Jesus said, they'll, mm -hmm. uh, they will know we are his disciples by the way we love each other and the way we love them. You know, yeah. And I think sometimes pro-life people are so they can be jerks. Yeah. You know, it's like we want to win people's hearts. We just don't want to be right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think that's another concern for a lot of pro-lifers is would a law, you know, would pushing for a law that would include punishments for a woman who has had an abortion, would that um, you know, hurt the Christian witness in some way? Um you know, so that's another question that some people are wrestling with, but these people who push for these homicide laws to be applied in cases of abortion would also say that, well, the law is a deterrent, you know, to people to, to tell them what's actually right and wrong. 
and they see that as the most loving solution. So while some people don't think that's a loving law, these yeah. groups are arguing that is a loving law. So it, you know, we have these conflicting views of what does it look like to love this woman who's going through this difficult circumstance. And I would say people on both sides though, are they're both, both of these kinds of groups are offering women alternatives. They are wanting to serve these women in their difficult mm -hmm. circumstances. Um, I'm sure that there are some people that are very hateful and angry towards, towards women who have had abortions or who are considering abortions. But overall, on both sides, I do see a lot of compassion and mm -hmm. a desire to serve. So that I, I hope that continues just yeah. overall in the country. Yeah, it's, it's, I'll say it's complicated. We need wisdom. And yeah, fortunately, God has given us his word and, you know, talk, having these conversations, having them in community with other believers, uh, preferably your local church with its yeah. leadership, but obviously reaching out to like your, your resource as well. It just takes wisdom and, in love. It really yeah, does. Yeah. And grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Leah, thanks for joining us. The, the book is called The Story of Abortion in America, A Street Level History, 1652 through 2022. It's from Crossway. Um, yeah. And if you are listening to this and you, like we've been saying, you had an abortion or you were a part of it or you celebrated or whatever, God is furiously pissed off at you but he took it out on his son he crushed him it pleased the father to crush the son and it, it and jesus and but no, at the same time we believe that that we believe in the trinity and we believe that jesus said no one takes his life he gives it up himself and it's for the joy set before him so his rage and anger has been taken out on jesus and and God's delight over the perfect life of Jesus now applies to you should you look to him in faith. So, yeah, I love the gospel. It's so awesome. Um, at, last question as we close out. Can you just real quick tell us what World News Group is all about? Like, so are you guys like some uh, you guys like right wing hard hitting pushers? You're going to like just give me a bunch of like conspiracy theories or like, and do we sign up? Do you have a podcast? Like everyone needs a good news source. Are you guys sure. our, our go-to or what? <laughs> yeah. So world seeks to offer biblically objective journalism that informs, educates, and inspires. Um, we have a podcast that goes out every weekday and uh, several different roundups that post online on our digital platform, as well as a bi-weekly print magazine that's also available on our website. So if you're interested, go to WNG.org. That stands for World News Group. Good. Thank you, sister. Grace to you on your labors. Fight the fight. Thank you so much. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to... Leave.